1: Bird's eye view. When it comes to the podcast about the Orioles, this is your official source for a lack of insight and baseless opinion. Today is the twenty-second of December, and this is episode one zero three. I'm Scott Magnus, and I'm here with my assistant of baseball operations, Jake English. That's a promotion, right? Um only if you don't go to Canada. Nice. You can find us at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. You should also be checking out various third party applications to follow this podcast, such as Stitcher, Miro, DoubleTwist, Twist, and I am supposing iTunes. Even though apparently they're not going to update for two weeks, um, which is really good practice for a billion dollar company. Then they could throw us off at any time. Yes, that's true. You should also be following us on social media at you know things like Facebook, but really you should be following us on Twitter at birdseyeviewb and again, we have to mention that we are proud members of Baltimore Sports Report Network. You can go and find us at baltimoresportsreport.com slash network. Thank you, Zach, for allowing us to continue to do this idiotic show that we continue to do on a weekly, semi-monthly basis now. So, Jake, with that, it's time for the drink of the week. Jake, what are you drinking tonight? I'm going to shock you. Okay.
0: I'm drinking a beer that, is, that does not suck. I I can see that it does not suck. However, I'm drinking it because somebody left it at my house. Ah, so it was free. Do I still get credit? Yeah, I guess so.
1: All right, I'm drinking. It means an- that you're a person that you, who left it for you has very good taste. Yes, I'm drinking an Aussie from Brewers Art. Ah, Brewers Art, a fine establishment within Baltimore City. Um, excellent beer. I'm a man of resurrection more so than Ozzy, but Ozzy is a very good saison. Um, Jake, I'm drinking a ten fitty. Excuse me, ten fitty. It's an imperial style from. Oscar Blues. It's pretty good. Stout. That's the kind of beer I'm not manly enough for, right? It's black and it's ten point five percent ABV,
0: which is why it's called ten fifty. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Now if you are among those that use the untapped app, um we of course post that to Twitter, but come find us on Untapped. I myself am at Jake E four oh two five. Scott is at M A G N eighty six oh six. It's good times. Yeah, follow us. Join us for the
1: drink of the week. Yeah, you can actually partake in our Friday, Saturday, and Sundays because we rarely get to drink during the rest of the week.
0: We're old men. Yeah, we're old men. Old, boring men. Yep. Speaking of old, boring men that can do nothing else, let's dive into the world of the internet in our weekly or semi-monthly event that we know as the TWAT. This week on the Twitter. All right. Do you, to, do you want to do this? Let's 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 talk about the big thing Jake, that happened. Break down the big. It's the big thing.
1: This has rocked the
0: offseason. The Orioles have finally made a move. All right. <laughs> and they have signed Wesley Wright. Now, the Baltimoreans, they tweeted as such. December 2013, colon, O sign serviceable reliever Ryan Webb. September 2014, O's win AL East december 2014 oh sign serviceable reliever wesley wright i think we know what's being said here
1: shut up wesley
0: yeah that's pretty right yeah, yeah. Sh- shut up wesley yeah wesley wright no big deal but his mom was hot all right <laughs> what saying. else what else do you have uh this goes into the wait a minute were you talking about gates mcfadden oh uh, yes i was you have a problem what's next <laughs>
1: This goes into the oh for the love of category. This is from John Heyman, and you can follow him at John Heyman CBS. Orioles still looking for an outfielder. May consider Ichiro Suzuki. Oh dear God, no. 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 As much as you and I both had an issue with Ichiro Suzuki being on the Yankees, we're not willing to partake
0: him onto the Orioles and put him into right field this Look, time. I love Ichiro. I think he was a great player. For Major League Baseball, obviously he had a a big role in the history of Asian players coming to to Major League Baseball. He's a joy to watch, or at least he was in his peak. He's 156 hits from 3,000. I think he'll get there. I think he's got 156 hits left him in the next X years. He's like 41 years old. But I don't want him on my club because he's 41
1: years old. Yeah. So no, no, I'm going to take Nori Yoki if I want uh, an Asian representation in
0: *Riverdale*. Thank you. Nope. We'll get to that. All right. Next in the twat, we've got a uh, tweet from Adam Goldfarb who tweets at Adam G. Farb, and this is about crashing movies. All mm-hmm. right. Big, big news with movies these days. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if uh, certain Asian nations can or cannot get on the internet, but this is somewhat different. The tweet is as this follows. This Twitter has a very Asian vibe to it. <laughs> Twitter, the uh, tweet is as follows. The best part of wedding crashers is Jay Gibbons is in it for like five seconds. 20 years from now, Jay Gibbons will still be in it. And then they, uh, they did a little CC to suspend his barbecue. That's great that's a good point actually i mean
1: that's that's thorough analysis that person should easily get like a master's degree in cinematography yeah
0: but i didn't remember any of that so i was jay gibbons being in wedding
1: crashers yeah how i
0: specifically remember he's sitting within the legal office and watching orioles game yeah that was not the highlight of the film for me but let's go forward before what was the highlight of the film enough move on okay
1: bud north likes his guys as covered on baltimore sports report this week Bud Norris went in a diatribe with Jason Stark this week. Um, Jason Stark had some pointed conversation pieces in an article regarding the American League East and how the Orioles really haven't done anything at all. Here is a quote from the article. This team won the American League East by 12 games, 12, and all it's done this winter is wave audios to three huge pieces of that team, to Nelson Cruz, and Nick Markakis to Andrew Miller, who are replacing them with, well, nobody. We're sure the Orioles will find a way to add a couple of bats on the left-handed reliever eventually, but you know what guys are going to? You know what the odds are of finding a 40 homework guy like Cruz sitting in the next free agent bargain bin next February? Zero. So boy, does this team have some work to do. But Norris responds: Healthy Weeders and Manny locked in. Chris Davis can hit 50, and we pitch and play de- j- play defense at Jason Stark. Hashtag #Birdland
0: I kind of like that.
1: That's pretty awesome. I'll, I'll be honest with Apparently you. Apparently,
0: Bud Norris takes the Twitter kind of like he takes the mound. Angry, chip on his shoulder. I, and he's pointing to the air. Hey, I got <laughs> I got no problem. No,
1: he's grabbing his crotch. He's grabbing his crotch and then pointing in the air. Woo! But, but again, Bud Norris went on this in this back and forth exchange with Jason Stark and basically ripped into people that were bashing on the Orioles. And it was like, all right, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I c- kind of like that. But at the same point. But if you have to be traded for some prospect that can come out and play in right field, we'll go ahead and do that.
0: All right, next, and I get all the fun names. This is from Rainy Jazzy Yearly. Uh, That's pretty good. Jazzy Jazzy Yearly. Uh, the tweet is as follows. For the $6 million annual pension owners are giving Bud Selig, they could have given every minor league player in baseball a raise of about $300 a month. That's that's two major issues that's being addressed in a single tweet of under 140 characters. That's a great tweet. It's a great tweet. Again,
1: um, we all know how you know absolutely horrific the minor league uh, salaries are and the wages that are going on. I'm not talking about the Dylan Bundys or the Kevin Gossmans. I'm talking about those players that are barely scraping by. Those 40th round draft picks. They're basically living on you know chump change and basically just using it to you know, pay for their hotel and really not get much of anything else. So they're not building into it. So when their bodies finally break down at the age of 20 or 29, they no longer can play major league ba- or play minor league baseball. They're basically left to go back out and find a job in the local community and really have nothing to show for it. With, they have no skills, right? They have no skill set. So um, the abuse and exploitation of minor league players is something that should be known by all baseball fans and there should be a greater consideration given to how much money this game is making in Major League Baseball that, like, $6 million can be given to, let say, like, on a retirement basis, but not to minor league baseball players. I think we just delved into a Baltimoreans thing here. Yeah. If we would have gone to, like, a nonprofit organization and talked about the Washington Redskins, sure, that would have been a Baltimoreans kind of thing.
0: All right. Uh, next, we've got a tweet from Hardball Talk. Um, and this is. Uh, of course, at Hardball Talk. And this is something that I'm starting to pay a lot more attention to. Uh, Padres expected to host 2016 All-Star Game at Petco Park. Jeez, are the Padres going to get everything this offseason?
1: Why? Padres, why are you taking everything? The All-Star Game talk was all we had. Slow off season. now no All-Star Game. Stop! It's not fair! Give me something! Maybe if we buy a 20 game plan, Major League Baseball will give us the All-Star game.
0: What is the deal? This is like What's the deal? It's it's like you go to a meal and there's the teenager at the end of the table that keeps eating after everybody else is done and eventually they just kind of like tilt the table toward the person that just keeps like nom nom nom. The Padres are Are consuming this offseason? Well,
1: the one thing I can tell you is the City Council for San Diego basically waived any fees associated with bringing in a major event such as the All-Star break. And it came out to be about $1.5 million in fees. And they basically said, yeah, we'll cover all that in order to bring them in there. I haven't heard anything like that in terms of the Baltimore Sun or anything like that. And a decision has to be looming soon. So with the situation with the Masson dispute in Major League Baseball and really nothing being done by Baltimore City at this time, I would kind of imagine that San Diego is going to get that before. And again, it's not like San Diego has hosted, um, at, at Pepco park too so i think they probably want to go to Pepco park if they can before they go and start regurgitating major league baseball
0: stadium so it kind of does make sense you know i didn't factor in the mass and thing that actually does make sense as a, as a big uh stick that mlb has in the in the whole mass and dispute that's that's a really good point that i haven't seen written anywhere else so so good on you scotty what what do you have next for the uh for the twat well, this is from Masson. Um, you can follow Masson, of course, at Masson Orioles.
1: And this comes from John be P. Be there. Yeah, this comes from John P. Angelo who I guess would be the uh, vice president or president of operations, um, something that Dan Duqueque could be getting in Toronto. And it says, uh, John P. Angelos believes relations made in Cuba through baseball could lead to people-to-people change and a political change.
0: You know, with the whole thing that the Orioles did with Cuba back in 1999, it it seems like there's a lot of back padding going on by the Orioles organization for for like, oh, we were so far ahead of our time.
1: Am I the only one getting that? You might be getting that. But, Jake, I've got a story for you. Oh, I love stories. Okay. So here's a funny piece of information. So, Jake, did you know that back in the 1950s, there used to be a minor league baseball team in the International League that was based out of Cuba? No, but pray continue. Okay. They were called the Havana Sugar Kings, and they played in the International League from 1954 through 1960s and were affiliated with the Cincinnati Reds organization. I know, Reds, kind of ironic. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So, Jake, when Castro nationalized all U.S.-owned enterprises in Cuba in 1960, baseball commissioner Ford Frick basically under pressure from the U.S. Secretary of State, announced that the Sugar Kings would be moving to Jersey City, New Jersey, and be renamed the Jersey City Jerseys. Okay, nice little piece of information. The Jerseys would only last the 1961 season before folding. Then they moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and then they moved to Portsmouth, Virginia, where they turned into the Tidewater Tides. What? And now they're known as the Norfolk Tides.
0: We have Cuba's sloppy seconds as our international triple A uh, International League triple A team. We had the Havana Sugar Kings
1: as our
0: great descendants
1: oh, in Norfolk.
0: I so want them to become the Sugar Kings again. That would be <laughs> awesome. So, Jake, as a point of
1: information, if you ever wanted to adapt the history of the Havana Sugar Kings, you should know this. Fidel Castro was a longtime baseball fan and often attended Sugar Kings games. Right, like you do. In Havana. And uh Castro had been a pitcher during his days at the University of Havana, and soon after taking power, he pledged to underwrite all the Sugar Kings' debts at the time. In fact, he even participated in an exhibition with a pickup squad that he uh, produced called Los Barbados, which is called the Bearded Ones in Spanish, (laughs) and a military police team that he brought together, too, for this expedition. (laughs) Of course, they were the military police. This was with the Sugar Kings. And also the Rochester Red Wings, which again... Another Orioles time. And this happened on July 24th, 1959. And you should know that Fidel Castro even came into this game, pitched two innings,
0: and ended up with two strikeouts. That's because everyone else was afraid to swing. All I'm saying is, he might have had a little Chris Davis in him. They didn't want their families to go missing. Okay, so Jake,
1: following that, the following day, the Red Wings and the Sugar Kings had an exhibition again. And Castro supporters were in full force for this, and everyone was having a good time. And then midnight struck, and the entire stadium broke out in lights, music, flag waving, and gunfire in a raucous celebration. For was, the, was Alfredo Simon there? Uh, he may have been. His, his 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 father may have been there for the 26th of July movement. And in that random gunfire, the Rochester third base coach Frank Verdi and Havana shortstop Leo Cordenas... Ended up with flesh wounds from gunfire into the air. <laughs> so everyone was pulled off the field. The Red Wings manager pulled everyone off the field, and the International League basically canceled the rest of the homestand for that exhibition as well. So there's your bit of history regarding the Havana Sugar Kings, AKA the Norfolk Tides, back in the 1950s
0: yikes that <laughs> um that is a really uh entertaining tale and it, it just shows you know the interconnectedness of this world and you know even the baltimore orioles have this nice little tie-in with a an international uh, news story that's going on yikes well with that jake you know let's get into other news stories that are
1: going on and there's a lot going on this offseason right is anything happening So Jake, I'm sure you missed it, but the uh, the O's have had a pretty quiet offseason thus far.
0: Really? Yeah. Imagine oh, nobody that. nobody has mentioned nobody has mentioned that.
1: Yeah. So let's go into the big moves over the past week, and let's talk about the big move, Wesley Wright.
0: Shut up, Wesley. Um. So big deal. So what? Who cares? Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I can figure is that it 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 signals the the beginning of the end for the Brian Mattis regime mm, here in Baltimore. Maybe. I mean, you've got to give
1: consideration of last year, TJ McFarlane and Brian Mattis were both in the bullpen for a significant period of time. Um, So it's not like you can only have one left-hander in there. There's nothing to preclude Russell LeRoy and Brian Mattis from both being in the bullpen.
0: All right. But, you know, you and I have had a lot of extensive conversations about the value of TJ McFarlane because basically nobody else will acknowledge that there is any. But TJ McFarlane can do a lot of things for you, include give you length. You know, gosh, a a spot start if you're desperate. These these are not things that Wright can do. Again, McFarlane wasn't necessarily just a lefty specialist either, and I feel like Wesley Wright is going to be that for the Orioles.
1: Um, I I can see that. Um, I think it would be actually opportunity for TJ McFarlane to go back to Norfolk and try to stretch himself out and turn into a starter. The Orioles do not have a left handed starter within their organization right now if we and Chen were to leave starting next year.
0: Yeah, but he is not a starter in the majors. He's he, just not. He could be a
1: back end starter. He could be a fourth or fifth starter. Yeah.
0: I I love me some TJ McFarland, but I I just don't buy the fact that he's gonna start in this league. I don't Okay. Not unless he's gonna play for the Havana Sugar Kings. Okay.
1: Like I said, I think he could be a possible fifth starter. Um but I don't think it's going to be any, anything more than that. And it looks like the Orioles have a plethora of options, including starting pitching coming up. But you never know. And it would be good to have a, a left-handed starter slash long man in the future. So um, it does raise the question of, you know, what was the point of going and getting TJ McFarland and putting him on the 40-man roster if he really isn't that much of value, though?
0: And, and what is the point of bringing in Wesley Wright if he's not going to uh, you know, replace one of those two guys, either McFarland or Mattis? So,
1: Jake, got opinion? You think Brian Mattis is gone? He gone. Okay. I think that Brian Mattis is probably gone as well, but I think it's going to be sometime in March before that happens, and I think it's going to be for a PTB NL.
0: All right. That that probably makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, that, that famous player, Cash, considering. Cash. All right, What el- has anything else happened?
1: Well, the other big news was Scott Coolball is our new hitting coach.
0: Yeah. You s- when you say big news, uh, all right, Scott Coolball, what do we know about this guy?
1: Well, he was previously in the Texas Rangers organization. Um, he didn't really work with Buck during that time because, again, it was during that 2011, 2012, and 2013 season. So it's not like he's got this interaction with Buck of, mm-hmm. I, you know, was his hitting coach while he was in Texas. And he was the minor league hitting coordinator. Is that right? Uh, that sounds right, yeah, where he was previously. But, again, his, he does have hitting coach experience in, for the Texas Rangers ball club. But he does have a good amount of experience with Chris Davis, um, and that was what who, who was extremely talked up to. Um, but I wanted to bring up a point with hitting coaches because a lot of times there's been a lot of grief given to Jim Presley. And I wanted to go through a baseball prospectus article. You would. Yeah, that was written by Russell uh, Carlton, and it's called The Impact of Hitting Coaches. And it basically looks at what is the value and worth of hitting coaches um, in terms of looking at various statistics. So um, it was interesting because Kubel's name came up multiple times in this article. Kubel's name came up for an increased percentage rate of strikes compared to a median hitting coach. Uh, The percentage rate for strikes increased by over 1.44%, which was the third worst from 1993 through
0: 2013 so he had the third worst percentage of an increase of strikeouts is that
1: right correct okay so if you take a look and say if you just throw a average hitting coach in there his you know strikeouts increased by 1.33 percent above an average hitting coach so kind of coming back to that decrease in selectivity rate for hitters compared to median hitting coach was by negative .056, which is not really super significant. But again, the third worst, which again tells you he has an inability to distinguish for strikes when he's dealing with hitters. So I don't think this is so much the hitting coach besides the fact that the increase in percentage rate for strikeouts has increased and the selectivity raises down. I think it's telling the batters to go out there and be aggressive, which again, it was a common complaint for Presley as a hitting coach as well. And again, following up on that train of thought, they also have an increased willingness to swing more often. That was up by .033, which is the third highest in a 20-year sample size as well. So, again, we're seeing a very aggressive approach with Scott Kubal, even more so than Jim Presley. Because Jim Presley was thrown into this study, and Kubal actually had a higher percentage rate in terms
0: of being a much more aggressive hit, uh, hitting coach as well. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't. I feel like I've come a long way when it comes to the statistical analysis that we talk about here on this show in the last two years. And as far as the validity and how much you know credence I will give it, I just want to say I didn't find this article very compelling. I did, I did read it, um, but I, I I think that you and I have talked in the past. You know what effect does a, a hitting coach really have? And I think that's that's what this article tried to get to. But at the same time, I feel like the the uh, results that you're going to get with personnel from one team to another is, is really the only thing that matters. You know, Jim Presley, you know, for all these things that the article said that he he did well. He had a good hitting team. Absolutely. He had a good hitting team. And if you have a guy like Adam Jones who is aggressive at, to a fault uh, according to a lot of fans, he's going to have a lot of metrics that don't look what, you know, that don't look good for him. Mm-hmm. He's also going to have 33 home runs and 100 RBIs, you know, a 280, you know, average and, you know, all the other things that are more significant than the back of the baseball uh, card stat. But, you know, did, did Coolball have those teams in Texas? And I think what we need to look at it is it's
1: looking at this article, it looked at the aspect of what talent you had on the team. And the Orioles, of course, have talent on this team. But it also looked at it and said, with that given talent, how much more was that team being able to overachieve in what they were going to be able to do. For example, Jim Presley, in a given season, was on average over a 10-year span worth about 50.43 runs in addition to the talent that he was able to produce, which equates to about two and a half wins above an average or median hitting coach. You know, we've seen studies like this for Buck Showalter on, um, on, on Camden Chat as well, and basically... It's come out and said, you know, Buck Showalter is worth about four wins strictly because of, you know, bullpen management and pulling people in at the right time. So I understand where you're coming from of saying, yes, talent does it, but you can have some idiotic moves and you can also, you know, bring down your talent by going out there and being a poor instructional facilitator as well. In this case, Jim Presley was an excellent hitting coach in terms of garnering those runs over a large sample size, whereas Scott Cobal... Um, He definitely isn't probably as high as Jim Presley was. And, again, he has had over a much shorter sample size, being only from 2011 to 2013. So it'll be interesting to see what actually transpires from a talent and an actual result standpoint. But it is interesting to note that anybody that is claiming that Scott Cobal is going to go out there and all of a sudden make this team into a high on-base percentage team, hmm, Highly unlikely, in fact, we might see the exact opposite of going out there and being a free-swing team and being very, you know, go out and swing on the first pitch if you think you've got a good pitch.
0: And and I think, you know, I think we're kind of dancing around the issue to the same point in the fact that we are going to see more of the same from the Orioles. I would agree. And again, the leadership structure that's in place, hired Jim Presley and hired Scott Coolball. Yep. So the approach is really not going to be that different. I'm not swayed by the the measurement of you know what a hitting coach can bring again. I'm not swayed by it either, but I think it's interesting to note
1: the aspect of aggressiveness. Maybe not yep. so much for runs, but just from the aggressiveness standpoint of what does this mean going forward? And the fact that school is linked to aggressiveness I think is interesting going forward next year for the Orioles.
0: I, I think you're right. I, a lot of work went into the article, and so I don't want to call the results anecdotal. because that, that, the,
1: the results actually make a lot of sense from a sabermetric viewpoint. Um, but from a gut aspect, I just want to come back and tailor it to you and our audience, and saying this is going to be aggressive. This is going to be aggressive hitting coach, and he's going to continue to be an aggressive hitting coach. We'll have to see what that means in terms of the Orioles, and it would actually be interesting to compare both to the Rangers and the Orioles after another sample size, and just see how they correlate.
0: Yeah, I think he got hired if he has that approach because of the talent of the Orioles. I would had. agree. You know, I, I think the hope is. So you're saying, hey, Adam Jones is an aggressive hitter. Let's go out and find an aggressive approach. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We've we've got Jonathan Scope who's going to swing from his ankles every time. Hmm. Let's hope that this guy can make that better. Correct. Right. Again, the only thing that concerns me about that is the decrease in selectivity
1: rate mm-hmm. of um, being able to recognize strikes, and hey, it doesn't seem like that's the case. Hey, we're in the basement already.
0: Yeah, it exactly. can't get worse. Yeah. Our selectiveness cannot get worse. It can always get worse, Jake.
1: Um. <laughs> So Jake, um you had an issue this week. I'm gonna I'm gonna call you
0: out. This is an intervention. Yeah, I I have many problems. This was one of them.
1: So your your issue this week was you sat down this week and you started to try to construct a 25-man roster in the middle of December. And the grisly details were you came to some horrific realizations, mainly with the aspect of Henry Euridia and uh well, Christian Walker, we're going to make this team well, on a 25 man roster.
0: Let me try to defend myself, all right? Okay. So, I've been I've been trying to make people a little more circumspect about the way they criticize this team, all right? You know, they're not doing anything in the off season. They're they're being really slow, they're being really methodical. You know what? I said to myself, this team is pretty good. This team is not that far away. From having a successful offseason. Right. I don't feel like we would have to add that much to be back to being a pretty good team.
1: Right. If you take a look at projected war for next year for the Steamworks projections, the Orioles are a middle-of-the-road team. They're right around, like, 37 wins right. for their entire team, which, again, is a near-playoff team, basically.
0: And the Orioles tend to over,
1: you know, overplay those projections. Goddamn that's, FIP.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's just who they are, right? right. So Specifically
1: I, pitching, not so much for offense. Uh,
0: Right, exactly. So you and I have our our feelings of how, you know, what needs to happen for this offseason to continue to be successful or to be successful. But I said, from here on out, if nothing else happens, let's look at the roster as it's constructed right now. What would this team look like? And so, I mean, can I break this down by position and, and just have you mock me mercilessly? You can to a certain extent. I don't want to get too far into this because, again, let's not get too down. Let's pick out some outliers that you want to focus on. All right, here we go. I think that when the season starts in April, you're going to have a rotation that includes Abaldo Jimenez and excludes Kevin Gosman. Eh. I don't want that to happen. But when you look at the the fact that we've got six starters and Gosman has minors flex, you know, options. I also point out that Miguel Gonzalez went down to the minor
1: leagues to start last year or through the, through the season last year, and Kevin Gossman remained
0: up. And Miguel Gonzalez still has an option remaining. I would not expect Kevin Gossman to start the season. Okay. Uh-uh. <laughs> um, We talk about options. The bullpen has a ton of problems as far as not being optional, uh, optionable. You have guys like Webb. Yep. That. No more options. Completely out of options. Yep. You've got guys like Wright, uh, Hunter, O'Day, all those guys, no options. I think Brad Brock is going to make this team. I think Brad Brock will probably make this team as two. Here's where things get crazy. I think one of the Rule 5 guys is going to have to make this team. Logan Verrett is the one that's closest in talent. I think he sticks with the club because, again, not what I would do, but the Orioles are stubborn thoughts um it, it's going to be either logan Verrett or ryan webb and honestly i don't see
1: either one of them i have to fear someone is going to get in there that's going to have options at some point I, again i'm coming back to i'm looking at someone like uh, oliver drake getting into the bullpen and being that options swing guy between him and tj mcfarland I think McFarland and, uh, and Drake go back and forth, back and forth between Norfolk and is that swing man in the bullpen. But I just don't see Logan Barrett making it, not just because he's a 5-5 uh, draft pick, but again, the talent really isn't there. If you go through and take a look at Baseball America and Baseball Prospectus reports, Logan Barrett is not a really highly acclaimed prospect. So it wasn't a major steal. Mm-hmm. It was a reach. And again, he was a... High A pitcher last year. So I don't think the Orioles are going to keep him.
0: Was it Verrett that was the high A guy or was it Garcia was the high A guy? Verrett was the high A. All right. Let me ask you this. How many Rule 5 picks have the Orioles made and failed to keep in the organization? Mm.
1: In the Dan Duquette in, in regime. The Dan Duquette era, none. But Almanzar was almost gone last year. So I could you easily see them you know, bringing Verrett in and then magically funding a 60-day DL for him and then trying to work out a trade or working out a trade for him later on. I mean, this is a good opportunity for them to take a look at him and try things out this spring and then work out a trade at a later point. But that doesn't mean he needs to be on the roster the whole year. I agree with you. It could be another you know, trade for, hey, we'll trade you this prospect for this guy straight up. I mean – You could easily trade um, like a Zach Davies or something like that if you really wanted to get crazy. But I don't think that's necessary at this time.
0: Hey, if the Orioles replaced Dan Duquette with me once he took uh, his job with the uh, Toronto Blue Jays, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. I'm just throwing stuff out there that is in the Orioles' MO, unfortunately. Uh, Last two things that, that I'll say. I think that the outfield at this point, with no other additions, has both Deaza and Lowe in it. Mhm. Nope, I agree with that. And the last two roster spots have to go to Eurudia and Walker, who are really the best of what's left over on the 40-man roster. Eh. try again. All right. Who else do you have there? Because my notable omissions are guys like Barry and Hassan, mm-hmm. as well as uh Jimmy Nohans Paredes and Steve Clevenger. Well, if you knew anything, you would know that Jimmy Paredes can play the corner. And he
1: also can play the outfield as well. So Jimmy Paredes is your fifth outfielder for this team at
0: this time. Even if that were true. <laughs> even if that were true. We're making an argument between Henry Urethra and Jimmy no Hands Paredes. Yeah. This is not a good conversation, right? At least we're not talking about Ryan Flaherty. No, because we know he's going to make the club. (laughs) Because we know he's going to make the club. Look, putting a roster together in December is a fool's errand. Not only is it a fool's errand, but it's depressing. It's incredibly depressing. Yeah, I mean, if you go through and you take a look at
1: some of the transactions that the Orioles made in January and February, and then they're going to sign a bunch of minor league players, and someone's going to come out that's going to surprise you um, and be on that 25-man roster It's interesting that Christian Walker's name constantly comes up, too, in working it out. In fact, if you look at some of the steamer's projections, they have constantly put Christian Walker in there as both a first baseman and DH for multiple plate appearances. Now, you've got to take that with a major grain of salt, but it is interesting to note um, what the Orioles could do with Christian Walker. Personally, I would throw him back at Norfolk allow him to garner the necessary defensive ability that he is struggling with him from the past year and see if that bat continues to translate at triple a. I don't think even though he had a breakout year last year in the minor leagues that he warrants a spot in the major leagues at this time. But I said the same thing with Jonathan scope last year during spring training. I said, there's no way that Jonathan scope is going to get it. He's not, he doesn't have the bat for it. Yada, yada, yada. And Jonathan scope really never got the bat for it last year. But the Orioles wanted him to come up and gain that experience and knowledge. And I'm it worked out well fielding-wise.
0: Batting-wise, not so much. I'm so pissed at you for bringing up Jonathan Scope because that was <laughs> going to be like the the, <laughs> the, the, the finger yeah. I drove in there <laughs> to to make my counter argument. I think you're right. I think that the Orioles believe that Christian Walker's bat will play at the major league level. I think they believe in his bat. I think you're absolutely correct. That but again, we're coming back to we're missing one spot. One spot
1: is what we're t- we're talking about here. And honestly, Jake— Someone is going to appear either in a January, February signing, or someone is going to show up in spring training and impress Buck enough to take him north for a month or two to see how he does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, let me throw my cards here on the table. I think that if the Orioles sign, uh, re-sign Delmon Young and sign a guy like Nori Aoki, that they're basically done for the offseason and they can close up shop and go into spring training.
1: Yeah, I would, like I said, I'm perfectly fine with them signing Nori Aoki. Funny story about that, actually. I was looking at his splits and because we were talking about left handed and right hander. Do you know that Nori Aoki actually has better numbers, even though he's a left handed bat against left handed pitchers as opposed to right handed pitchers? I do know that. That's really weird, isn't it? Yeah. That's
0: really weird. It must be that batting style of his, but that's still kind of weird. He's also, and you know, this sounds kind of dumb when you say it out loud, but he's also a left-hander. Or I'm sorry, he's also a leadoff hitter. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that's going to be a hole for the Orioles, you yeah. know, going into the season without somebody like that. It's, it's an interesting
1: conversation point of whether a leadoff hitter is really that big of a deal, and there's a constant debate within the sabermetric community over whether lineup balance is important or if you just go for pure, you know, offensive power. Um and there is certain a certain knack to being given to lineup balance. But lineup balance is definitely a, a big point. But if you could put in a Miguel Cabrera one through nine in your lineup, you put a Miguel Cabrera one through nine in your lineup. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> he, he can hit lead off for me right. any day. Right, exactly. So um but Ayoki is an interesting choice. Delman Young still scares me. I'm sorry. I understand Delman Young had that magical moment last year for the Orioles, and he had an amazing season last year for some clutch hitting. But he is an absolute garbage fire for the past few seasons. The fact that to actually think that he can come back and
0: do the same thing as he did last year for the Orioles, highly unlikely, highly unlikely. The thing with Delman Young is that he's a professional hitter that can be depended upon in clutch situations. Do I think that that he's going to be as good as he was last year? No. No. But let me say it this way. If we have to have somebody come in off the bench in an offensive situation let me look down at my 40-man roster and see that the best option right now off the bench I've got is Henry Urudia. Would I rather have Henry Joseph, or would (laughs) I rather have Delman Young? And the answer is Delman Young, right? And I I don't think that Young is going to be expensive. And I think for being the 25th guy on the roster, if we acknowledge to ourselves that he's there to be a pinch hitter. And a fifth outfielder. No, he's there to be a, 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 a pinch hitter whose glove is somehow lost in the mail. You mean there's a big fire and they just dump it in there? Yes, yes. He get he gets the and Vladimir Guerrero is yes. standing by the fire. He gets and just standing, the Vladimir Guerrero warm. treatment. If, <laughs> if we are honest with ourselves about our his role in this club, yeah, I'll pay for that. No problem. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, if you're looking for bench depth, when I mean,
1: we all know that bench depth is critical, um, and Young is a great bench depth uh, player to sign for this team, but no more than one year. No more than one year. If he comes for
0: a two year contract, no way. Yeah, I wouldn't mind paying $3 million over two years to have that bench depth. I'd rather just pay one year and $4 million and say, hey, come on in, and then we can cut your ass as soon as you're you're, you're no longer contributing. Fair enough. I appreciate you calling me out for the mental exercise. You're right. It was wrong of me to do. It was wrong. And I see the error of my ways. Great. Speaking about errors of people's ways,
1: I think it's time we go ahead and reminisce about, well, silliness
0: let's get to some silliness jake oh no
1: 40 players, that's all, and 15 of them were organizational depth. Players saved and moved to meet the necessity for the organization. Three times Dan counted the roster. 40 players. And the next day would be Christmas. Dan reached into his tattered and torn sports court and pulled a napkin from the deli run by Jimmy John from down the street and wiped his eyes clear of the tears. He stood by the window of the warehouse and looked out dully at a gray rat walking across a gray fence in a gray backyard known as the outfield at Camden Yards. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and he had nothing in which to buy Buck what he so desperately needed. He had been saving every penny he could for months with this result. Twenty dollars a week doesn't go far at the winter meetings. Expenses had been greater than he had calculated. They always are. Only pennies to buy something for his buck. His buck. Many a happy hour he had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Buck. Suddenly he whirled from the window and stood before the glass. His eyes were shining brightly, but his face had lost its color within twenty seconds. The sounds of the alarm from the fax machine went off as another waiver wire prospect unfurled from the corner of his office. Now, there were two possessions of the Orioles in which they took a mighty pride. One was Buck's insistence on the Oriole way and his keen eye towards the importance of defense. The other was Dan's waiver wire fax machine. Had Alexander Graham Bell known what power could have been created in such a telecommunication device, perhaps he would have reconsidered before he developed such a devastating weapon within the baseball world. With a mere beep and bloop, hearts would be aflutter within Utah Street, and Buck would flash a rare smile as the next deal within baseball would be known throughout Baltimore. On went Dan's old brown jacket, and on went his old brown hat. With a whirl of his coat, and with the brilliant sparkle still in his eyes, he fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the streets below. Where he stopped, the sign read, "Monsieur Pelletier, electronic goods of all kinds, established 1977. A bird adored the sign of the establishment, but this avian variety was blue and black with a red maple leaf above it. One flight up, Dan ran, and he collected himself, panting. Monsieur, a plump man with a chilly demeanor, looked down upon him. Will you buy my fax machine? asked Dan. I buy things of value, said Monsieur. Let us have a sight at the looks of it. Dan unfurled a brown box and dropped it on the table. Immediately, the machine began to beep and hum with names once more. Monsieur Pelletier smirked and whipped out a roll of parch and a large sum of cash. began ransacking those names that were still available to him he found it at last it surely had been made for buck and no one else there was no other like it on any of the other teams and he had turned all of them inside out it was a 22 year old five tool outfield international prospect and properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation as all good signings should be, it was worthy of Buck. As soon as he saw it, he knew that it must be Buck's. It was like him quietness and value. The description applied to both. He took the roll apart and signed a contract fit for the team for six years plus club options for the money garnered from the exchanges made prior. With that player on his team, Buck might finally reach the grandest series within all of baseball, once in his career. When Dan returned to the warehouse, his intoxication gave way to little prudence and reason. He knew that the player would need instruction sooner rather than later. He summoned for Buck to have a meeting at 7, awaiting to regale him in the showing of his brand new signing. At 7 o'clock, the coffee was made, and he knew that the stove was hot and ready for Buck. Buck was never late. Dan tapped his hand together as he sat in the corner. Then he heard his step on the stair way down on the first flight. And he turned white for just a moment. He had a habit for saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things. And now he whispered, please, God, let him have brought sandwiches from Jimmy John. The door opened and Buck stepped in and closed it. He looked very serious. Buck stopped inside the door, as an immovable as a setter at the scent of a quail. His eyes were fixed upon the corner, and there was an expression in him that he could not read, and it terrified him. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that he had been prepared for. He simply stared at the corner fixed with that peculiar expression on his face. Dan wiggled off the table and went for him. Buck, darling, he cried. I had to get rid of the machine. I went and sold it because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you something for this team. My contacts will grow once again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. Say Merry Christmas, Buck, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice... What a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You sold the fax machine? Asked Buck laboriously, as if he had never arrived at the patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Sold it to the Canadians, said Dan. Don't you like me just as well, anyhow? I'm still me, even without that machine. Buck looked about the room curiously. You say your machine is gone? And to the Blue Jays? He said with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Dan. It's sold. I tell you, sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve. Be good to me, for it went for you. He went on with sudden, serious sweetness. But nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I pour you a coffee, Buck? Buck drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dan. I don't think there's anything that could make me feel different about you. But if you will unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers nimble, tore at the string and paper. And then an ecstatic scream of joy. And then, alas, a change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lay a ream of dot matrix paper, the same dot matrix paper that would only work on the fax machine that Dan oh so loved. Beautiful green and white lines, side tear strips with perforated pages, perfect for those from the 1980s and 90s. They were rare these days, he knew, and his heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession of them in this day of age. And now they were his, but, but the purpose for them was long gone. But he hugged them to his bosom, and at length he was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My context grows so fast, Buck. And then Dan leaped up like a little sing cat and cried, Oh, oh! Buck had not yet seen his beautiful present. He held it out to him eagerly upon his open palm. The papyrus, barely yet dried, seemed to flash with a reflection of bright and ardent spirit. Isn't he dandy, Buck? I hunted all over for him. You'll have to look at him for years to come in the outfield. Now give me your lineup card. I want to pencil him in. Instead of obeying, Buck tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dan, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I told Demon that he would be our starting outfielder next year to get the dot matrix paper from some of his Jewish contacts for your fax machine. The two men looked at each other, embraced, crying in each other's arms as snow fell over the warehouse on that Christmas Eve night. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men who brought gifts to the babe in the manger they invented the art of giving christmas presents being wise their gifts were no doubt wise ones possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication And here i have lame related to you the uneventful chronicle of two who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasure of their house but in a last word to the wise of these days Let it be said that all of who give gifts, these two were the wisest, who all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the wisest, everywhere they are the wisest, they are the magi.
0: That was beautiful.
1: It's a timeless tradition and magical story.
0: Nothing sets the mood of the holidays quite quite like that, Scotty. You, you've really outdone yourself and performed what is, in my view, a Christmas miracle. What can I say? Whenever you can include uh,
1: sentences such as Dan Duquette holding it to his bosom, it's a win.
0: Yeah, yeah. Your mind is a dark and frightening place. And and as if we have not already done so, sir, we, mu- we are obligated at this point to blow the save. All right, so let's go ahead and blow the save. Um, this
1: past week, uh, Jeff Sullivan posted an article on Fangraphs, and again, it was a perennial topic that happens during December, which, Jake, you've already crossed the threshold of doing predictions. And also in March, when people say... Why the heck do the predictions say my team is not going to be as good as they were last year? And Jess Sullivan wrote the article on Fangraphs. You should all go out and check it out. It's called, Does Projected Team War
0: Actually Mean Anything? What is it good for?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Something. Um, In essence, it showed, and this is exactly what we expected, which is, it shows if a team is going to be really good, kind of okay, Or really bad. And it shows a very good job of grouping up into those tiers. So, for example, a team like the Astros, they're really bad, and there's no possible way that they are going to get really good and be be a playoff team. (laughs) But by that same aspect, a team like the Dodgers or even the Red Sox are a very good team and have a very good possibility of being a playoff team. That's not to say they are going to be a playoff team, but they have a very strong possibility of being a playoff team. However, Jake, if we come back and take a look at this, and we take a look at some of Jeff's, um, let's just call them scatter plots, along with some trend lines that he established, taking a look at just the trend lines for actual versus projected war values, um, the trend line comes out to be right around 0.43, which, Jake, that's pretty bad. Not to mention, if you take a look at war and how it translates into wins, over 2002 to 2014... You have a correlation value of 0.78, which is better. But again, for an analytical system, it's certainly not perfect. Which just comes back to the situation of the projections are not bad, but that doesn't mean they are written in stone. Over the two seasons, past two seasons, 20 teams have made the playoffs. And um, out of them, thirty, uh, the average of them were 37 projected war. Now the Orioles stand at around 35 projected war. So they're right there in the hunt of being a playoff potential team. In addition, the lowest warp team over the past years was the 2013 Cleveland Indians, who had a projected war of 27.6. So obviously, they overachieved greatly in their first year with Terry Francona and then plummeted to earth last year. But Jake, the summation at the end of this article, I think was perfect. And I'm going to break it down then these mathematical equations. Projected war plus breaks equal actual war. Actual war plus luck equals actual record. Jake, did you know that you can't predict baseball? And isn't that the reason why we're constantly turning in
0: to watch it? What? You can't predict baseball? Yeah, imagine that. Look, these projections that happen at this point in the season, um, I don't put much stock in them, and frankly, I don't think anybody else should. But it's a good place to start a conversation. Exactly.
1: It's a good place to start a conversation, but don't strictly lie in the numbers and say, that team's going to be better than that team because the projected war is.
0: And you know what? You look at an, uh, a division like the AL East, it's going to have some serious parity to it. Absolutely. Which all, means that the, all the teams are within eight wins, and
1: there is a six to eight win deviation in projections. So any team in the American
0: League East could easily be the next division champ next year. Right. Uh, fan graphs, I think, had the Orioles projected to win 79 games, which I think is garbage. But... They also don't have them projected to win sixty two. <laughs> correct. <laughs> which which it has been in the past. So I think it just goes to show, look, you know, we think that conservatively they'll they'll be here, but it's not outside the realm of possibility of them being, you know, much better. Which you can say for all five of those teams in the ALE. That's correct. I don't have a problem with that as a as a starting point for the conversation. I say war is a crap stat, but not unuseful for a good bit of uh, Os talk yeah so it, like we talked about good starting point but don't let it be the focus of it again
1: in the offseason go out and get those high war players because again they generally indicate that you're gonna have higher talent and maybe it makes something of it
0: oh you mean you mean we should go get players in the offseason
1: yeah we should do that then we, we can actually have something to talk about that's what this is for and then we don't have to have me sit down and do a whole gift to the magi discussion
0: no i think we should do that every okay. week you should just do O. henry's collected works every week uh i
1: don't think so because i don't think people would get the references although a flowers for almonds are, was nice um jake with that happy holidays we'll see everyone in 2015 say you goodbyes scotty merry christmas to you and to all a good night adios everybody see you in
0: 2015 go o's Mean do something. Do something. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.